Welcome to the Good Shepherd Church podcast. Good Shepherd is a gospel-centered church plant in Southeast Lakeland, Florida, and our vision is to join God's mission to see a glorious city filled with disciples of Jesus who are secure as children of God, connected as the family of God, and engaged as stewards of God's love to their neighbors and beyond. Here you will find sermons and other resources to help root and equip you in your true identity in Christ. We're glad you're here. Uh, My name is also Jeremy, and uh, welcome. Glad you guys are here today. So this week, uh, if you've ever met my dog, he's very large and in charge. And uh, so he's a 120-pound Great Dane. And I had to take him to the vet. Um, Particularly, I had to take him to the vet to get four shots. And so you can probably imagine in your mind's eye how that went. Um, So we walk in and we're sitting in the the, uh, waiting room. We get ushered back. and, um, And almost as soon as the door gets closed, this vet tech lady comes in. And she's kind of ominously standing there. She was a, a, a pretty big... Uh, tall lady and so she walks in the room and um, proceeds you know he gets kind of skittish and she kind of sizes him up and looks at him and she says they send me in for the big dogs and so she proceeds to hand me a muzzle and a towel and says here you put these on not like me but put these on the dog and so I put, you know, put the muzzle and the towel over the dog's eyes and mouth. And then she proceeds to get on his back and grab him under his belly like this and wrestle him back into the corner. It was quite, yeah, as you can imagine, it was quite a, uh, an ordeal. Isn't that, and you know, he's the whole time, he's shaking and he's, he's backing up and he's kicking and he's kind of bucking left and right. He did a good job overall, but he fought it tooth and nail the whole time. Is this not how we experience suffering? When I was sitting there watching him (laughs) with his eyes blindfolded and this muzzle, I was just imagining, isn't this how it feels to suffer? It, It feels very dislocating. It feels very much like we've got a muzzle on our mouth. We've got blinders on our eyes. We cannot see which way's up, which way's down. It feels like the weight of the world is on our back and has us under the belly like this, and we're just doing the best we can to try to squirm out of it. Is there a better way than that to suffer? Is the question that James is going to help us to answer today. James was not one who was far away from suffering himself, right? We, if you remember from the very first week of this series, way back when, in the very first few verses, to the dispersion is who he's writing to, meaning to Jewish Christians who had been dispersed across the Roman Empire because of persecution. And so he's particularly writing to these types of folks who are undergoing some pretty weighty suffering. How was he going to coach them up to respond to it? What kind of tactics is he going to give them? Let's read. James 5, 7 through 11. We're almost done. We got one more week and we're done with this. Here it is. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who remained, uh, I'm sorry, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's a good way to end. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask uh, that you would help now to locate us in our suffering. Uh, Many of us, as we're walking in today, uh, we are walking in heavy. We're walking in burden. Uh, We're walking in maybe with a, a heavy burden on our back and a sense of we don't know where we should go from here. I pray that you meet us. Uh, I love when Jeremy prayed just a minute ago that you prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Though we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. And it is just a shadow. Uh, Because death, for those who believe in the Lord Jesus, is no more. And we look forward to that day when you will make that all right. When you will make everything new. So point us with your text this morning to that glorious day and help us to live today in light of that one. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is a unique Christian response then to suffering. Unique in the sense that there is, there is no other worldview, there's no other religion, there's no other system of doctrine that can, that can give this kind of a backbone in the middle of suffering. Why? Because there is no other religion, no other worldview, no other system of doctrine that has an assured future like ours has. And so because of the sure future we have, we have the unique Christian response to be able to what? To wait. Patience, patience, patience over and over again is the main theme of how do we handle ourselves in suffering. So, uh, the passage kind of breaks down in these three ways this, this evening. One, the gift of patience. This is unique again to the Christian, so we'll talk why is it unique. Uh, secondly, the grit of patience. Patience is not lying down and just letting life run over you. It takes grit. And third, the glory on the other side of patient endurance. So let's jump right in. The, the gift of patience. The, the context, again, that James is writing into is a context that would continue for the next two to three centuries in the early church. As the early church is getting its legs under itself, as the early church is building its foundations across the Roman Empire, they did not, for the most part, they did not do so in an easy way. So verse 7, be patient, therefore. The first word that I want to focus on this evening with you is the word therefore. 
as you read the Bible for yourself, which again is part of the goal of this time is to be equipping you to do this seven days a week. As you read the Bible for yourself, one of the questions you can ask anytime you see the word therefore, here's a pithy little phrase, maybe you've heard it before. What's the therefore? Therefore. It's funny. It's catchy. You'll remember it, I promise. So what is the therefore in verse seven, therefore? It means it's connecting what has been to what is. So anytime there's a therefore, it's a connection between the two ideas here. What is the idea that we have just studied the previous week? We talked about James was, was bemoaning and condemning the rich and the way that they were treating the poor under them. It talked about words like oppression. It talked about words like even murder that you have done to these people who you think you are better than. Now, here's most likely the context. Most likely, James is not directing this towards Christians. Most other places, he uses the word brother, specifically, which is the majority of the passage, he uses the word brother to describe when he's talking to the household of faith. But here, in those first seven verses, he doesn't use, or first six verses, he does not use the word brother. So most likely, he is condemning the worldly rich and the way they're treating his friends the way they're treating his brothers and sisters in the church. And so when he says, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, you have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous persons. This is most likely a real life scenario, a real life persecution scenario that's going on. Because if, if you think about what else is going on during this time, most likely around the same time that James is written, the emperor on the throne is Nero of the Roman Empire. And Nero didn't quite, well, he didn't like much anybody that didn't further his own agenda. And he particularly did not like anyone who stood directly in his way of his emperorship or whatever that word is. And so he hated especially Christians. Philip Schaff, who's a, a Christian historian, says this. Their Jewish origin, their indifference to politics and public affairs, and their abhorrence of heathen customs were construed into a hatred of the human race. So a vast multitude of Christians were put to death in the most shocking of manners. Paul, in the very same way, as he's writing also in this same kind of a context. Paul, who would most likely was beheaded by the hands of Nero. Paul had these words to say as it had to do with the unique gift of Christian patience. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace, and there it is, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This kind of patience that James is talking about here is not a natural, worldly ability. This is not something you can kind of work up and practice. It's not something that just by, you know, you kind of get up in the morning and you do deep breathing techniques for 10 minutes and you spend time thinking about your day and all the ways and the challenges that could come up against you. And then during your day, you're constantly thinking through and being calm. And this is not possible to do because as each one of us is probably painfully aware, life is not that predictable. 
And when life is not that predictable, then we tend to react not naturally in this list kind of a way. We tend to react in the other kind of the way. So let's look at just the previous two verses of Galatians 5. To contrast patience and all the good things like it, he then says, here's what the flesh does. When you suffer, here's what your flesh is going to want to do. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and that's not even all. But he doesn't have time to list them all and things like these. So you could kind of break these down if you're thinking about what is a worldly way to suffer as opposed to a uniquely Christian way to suffer. Here's a way you could kind of break this down with the common understanding modern worldview of how we came to be and how we respond as humans. Fight or flight? Fight. We can break these down in these two categories. Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, Rivalry, dissension, division, envy. Suffering makes us want to turn on each other. Right? When the heat gets applied, the people closest to us are usually the ones that feel it and get hurt the most. Right? So think about the last time you had a bad day. And think about the people you encountered in that bad day. And how did those people walking away from you that day, most likely feel. 2020, if it has been anything, has been a year of division. Hasn't it? And so in verse 9, James is so keen, keenly aware of this to say, brothers, sisters of the faith, don't grumble against each other. I know you're going to be tempted to go there. I know life is hard right now. And I know it's so much easier to be tempted to go, it's his fault, it's her fault than to look in the mirror, like we talked about a few weeks ago, and own your own. Fight. One response we can go to is bow up, take every bit of suffering, and do our best to wrestle it to the ground like that vet tech did with my dog. Or we might sway the other direction. And this could be, you know, maybe even circumstantial. Sometimes you move more one way, sometimes you move more the other. Or maybe you see that in one of these, this is more your go-to response always. I'm always a fighter. I'm always going to go in. I'm always going to lean in and go for the jugular. Or I'm always more going to run away. Flight. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Drunkenness. Orgies. And the like. So, if, if fighting is not necessarily our response, meaning if we're not going to try to wrestle suffering to the ground, then what we will do is we will go to the opposite side and say, I can't see you suffering. I can't hear you suffering. I can't see you bad issue in my life. I'm just going to go over here and I'm going to pretend like you don't exist. I'm going to numb myself. I'm going to find all of my favorite pleasures and I'm going to surround myself with all of them and it's going to be so good and I don't have to worry about all that mess I don't have to worry about all that stuff right we, we all know the the image of 
I know it's been in a number of movies. I can't pull one up off the top of my head, but you know the image of the girl who just got dumped by the boyfriend, and she's sitting there in the oversized sweatshirt watching the rom-com, and what does she have in her hand? The entire tub of ice cream, which she forthright finishes, right? We know, and, and it you know, can be funny, but it can also very much not be funny. This is where addictions start many times. This is where compulsive behaviors start. Many times, this is where sin patterns start and then can balloon into massive issues because the suffering was not dealt with in an appropriate, uniquely Christian kind of way. And this is where the breakdown can begin to happen. And so James wants to beg the question, is there not a better way? Brother, sister, is there not a better way for us to suffer? And then he gives this amazing image that has so much packed into it. We can fight, we can flight, or we can farm. Look at verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. If you've been over to my house uh, in the past four months or so and you've walked out towards our trampoline and looked to the left, then you've seen what used to be a, a beautiful patch of grass on the left side of our home and is now an entire farm. Uh, so my wife has decided to become a farmer during COVID. Um, but it's legit. She's really doing it. And so we now have an entire 40 foot by 20 foot, 800 square foot of nine 20 foot garden beds. And these garden beds, Lord willing, by the spring are going to be burgeoning with flowers that hopefully could turn into some kind of a small business. And it's really neat uh, to watch this thing happen right in our backyard. What I didn't know, though, is how much work it is to be a farmer. Like... I'm not really gardeny. I don't really do gardeny things. So I didn't realize, I thought you put the seed in the ground and then the seed pops up and then you harvest whatever it is and then you move on with your life. But this like, this, she could spend an eight hour day, five days a week and still not have everything done out there that needs to be done. It is amazing to watch, right? We've got this landscape fabric that runs across the entire uh, length of each one of these garden beds. Each one of those uh, landscape fabric things had to have a hole this big, two inches around, burned inside of it so that you could put the seed in the middle and it keeps the rest of the weeds at bay. And then weeds still happen and they find ways to do their little devilish deeds somehow and then they keep cropping up and then she's got to get out there and one by one, she's got to pick the weeds. Not only that, there are these worms that crawl all over the things and eat, you know, leaves, and then that causes the plant to die. So then she's got to spray this thing on the leaves so that they don't die. Then you got to fertilize to make sure that it grows up healthy and the roots grow deep. Then you got to water the things like all the time. There's so much to this, and I had no idea that there was so much to this. You can fight, you can flight or flee, or you can farm. The, the image that is being invoked here is a very ordinary image for the day. Right? As an agrarian society, for the most part, everybody knew how difficult it was 
to farm. Everybody knew by the sweat of your brow, you will fight off thorns and thistles in the same way that uh, God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. And so there is patience is not, like I said, is not just a rolling over and letting whatever your suffering is take hold of you and do whatever it is to you. Suffering is farming. Suffering is taking your life in hand and is picking the weeds of bitterness and picking the weeds of temptation and picking the weeds of vice. It's, it's fertilizing with the truth of God's word when you've got you know, filth all around you that is both in your head and outside of you that's saying your life is wrong, what you're doing is wrong, run away. You water with prayer. You have a trellis all around you right here in your church family. And that support structure helps to, to build you up when life is bringing you down. Right? There, there is an activity to suffering. There is a, an active resistance to the entropy of suffering just taking you and flattening you like a pancake. God is doing something more in your suffering. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in whatever you're going through today that God is active and then you can be a co-laborer with him to cultivate and wait for the beauty of whatever that crop is on the other side? So we've talked about what it takes, that it's a gift. We've talked about uh, the grit of patience. Now the glory there is a glory on the other side. It is as difficult as farming is. There is a payoff on the other side. As difficult as enduring suffering well by faith is, there is a goodness on the other side. Right? He brings up, right after the farmer idea, he brings up these two other images. One of the prophets and two of Job. He brings up the prophets and Job just to say, hey guys, you're not alone. Right? You have an entire biblical history written down right here of a bunch of people who have suffered in a lot of ways, in way worse ways than we have, written down for you, such as the prophet Jeremiah, who God comes to and says, I want you to be a prophet. I want you to give your whole life to this. And guess what? No one's going to listen. And they didn't. What would that experience of life have been like? To spend your life's work to be put into this and for God to, for God to ahead of the whole thing, say, eh, it's not really going to work out great. What would that experience of suffering have been like for him? And then he brings up Job. All right, if you spent any time in Job, you remember that his children die. His crops wither. His farm animals are killed. All of, that means all of his money is wiped away. Then all these health problems show up. He's got boils all over his body. His wife hates him and wishes that he would just curse God and they could go, she's flighting there. Curse God, just let's, let's get away from him. All he's doing is bringing pain and suffering. Let's go somewhere else. And then his friends come in and they don't help much either. They're not that trellis that we talked about in one sense. Uh, they're doing the very opposite. They are adding extra weight to his back. And so Job, I mean, not Job, uh, James is here to say you're not alone. 
You're not alone in your suffering, but follow the trajectory of the prophets. Follow the trajectory of Job. And what happens at the end of those stories? Glory. What happens at the end of the prophet's stories? Jesus. What happens at the end of Job's story? Restoration. And not only restoration of fortune, but a restoration and really a renovation of heart. So take heart. You're not alone in your suffering. Verse 11. If you've ever asked the question, as I'm sure, if you've ever suffered considerably, you probably have, why would God do this? Why would God do this? Verse 11. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. This is the very last verse, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's, let's bank on those verses. Whatever he said before that, let's bring those two words to the bank. Because if you've ever asked that question, God, why? Why me? Why now? Why are you doing this? Of anything you could have thought of, this was the best in my life? This does not feel like the best life now. And maybe it's not supposed to be. But verse 9 helps to clarify. I don't have this one on the, the board here. Um, but verse 9 helps to clarify. There's a phrase that is chilling. It says the judge is standing at the door. As if right at this side door right here, Jesus is on the other side of that with his hand on the knob. And he is waiting for whatever that right moment is to turn that knob and break in. Christ's return, like we spoke about a few weeks ago, is imminent. We don't know when, we don't know what, we know it's going to be a thief in the night, that's about all we know, but in the scope of all of redemptive history, it's near, whether that's in our lifetime or not. And so what does that begin to do if, again, if this little mini-series we're in right now is how do we live God awake, then what does that reality, how does that wake us up to what's true and real? That means that Jesus has his hand on that door right there and very soon is going to break in. And how is he described? He's described as a judge. Because if, if you've ever asked the question, God, why are you doing this to me? A, a better question might be, why is God doing anything other than this to me? Right? The reason that suffering exists in the world is not because of God. It's because of us. Go all the way back to our foreparents, Adam and Eve, and every person after that. The reason that suffering, the reason that death, the reason that tears rushed into the world, and the reason that we experience whatever you're experiencing today, either internally or externally, is not because God is because of us. We have brought the sin that has broken the world into it. And so the real question is, if God is just, which he is, then why would he do anything but punish us? Right? We haven't done anything else to deserve, to merit anything better than that. Now remember those two words. But the Lord is compassionate. And the Lord is merciful. Those are the two words that we can lean into in our suffering. Because if you can imagine the heavenly courtroom, when Jesus returns and we stand before him, 
and he sits on his throne and he looks down at us and he'll say why should why should I let you in right and then imagine that he gets off that throne and he sits in the dock in your place and places you to the side and says this is why because I have endured true suffering for you the wrath that you have deserved I've sat down and I've said father I'm going to take it for him I know they brought a bunch of mess into this world but I know you long for so much more I know that inherently in your nature you're compassionate and kind and so I'm going to follow through on your compassion and your kindness and I'm going to walk into hell for them because he's compassionate and he's kind and so what is he doing on the cross He's receiving all of that wrath. He's receiving all that suffering. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's asking that question. Why is this bad thing happening to me? And what is the response of the Lord? Not that. It's nothing. The Lord's response to Jesus saying, why are you doing this to me? Why has this suffering come upon me? His heavenly Father, who he has always loved and who has always loved him, gives him not a word. Why? So that when we approach the throne of grace and when we ask God, why? Why are you doing this? I could come up with such better plans for my life. Why are you doing this? We can know because Jesus has said, why have you forsaken me? And received no response? We can, with abandon, say, where are you? Why have you, what feels like you're forsaking me? But if he did it to him, he will not do it to you. Because he's compassionate. And because he's merciful. So, to ask the question, for what purpose do you suffer? Verse 11, can we pop that one up one more time? He literally says, so, uh, where is it? Very last sentence. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So why do you suffer? Because the Lord is compassionate and merciful, and he wants you to know it. So to go back to the farming analogy just for a minute, how does a flower flourish? How does a flower multiply itself? At least an annual, if you know about farming things, which I don't. I had to ask my wife what that meant. Uh, a f- an annual flourishes because it dies. And that, that seed pod that is in there drops to the ground, and with that seed, then ten more are birthed where the one was in its place. And then it continues to multiply, and it continues to multiply. And soon you have an entire field of wildflowers that just started with one. But why? Because one died. And so in the very same way, in suffering, what feels like death to you? What very much might feel like death, and even in in some cases, is death, is actually faith multiplying itself in your life. So, in the early second century, Tertullian was an an early church father, and he he wrote a lot specifically about the persecution that they were undergoing. 
And here's what he wrote. We multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is still true today. It may not be your actual blood spilled out, but how does the church look beautiful? It suffers well in a world that is not its home, walking along this life as a pilgrim in a foreign land, knowing that new heavens and new earth and beauty forever is coming, and this is not it. And with a hope that because Jesus was forsaken, in our deepest suffering, we will never be. And so this dynamic is still taking place today. When you put your life aside for the sake of someone else, multiplication is happening. When you die to yourself and die to your desires to either fight or flee, your faith is growing. And so I don't know what that is for you today. Whatever suffering may feel like that giant monkey on your back. But God is doing a good work. And so lean into those two words. He's compassionate and he's merciful. Take those to the bank every morning. He suffered in an eternal way. Suffering and experiencing the pain of death the pain of separation from God so that we will never have to. And so whatever God is doing, lean in, don't fight, don't flee, farm. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard word. This is, this is great for me to stand up here and say this. But your word, would it bear fruit? I pray uh, that by your spirit's power, we would walk out of here and even be surprised with how light we feel. I pray that we would be surprised with the, the joyful outlook we have at things that walking into this room, we felt like were utter death staring us in the face. Because we have a savior who has died and raised himself again and because the resurrection is true resurrection is possible through death in each one of our lives and so would we would you more and more capture us by your reality by the fact that this world is not our home by the fact that you have secured a redemption for a particular people and thank you that you have rescued us who believe in you to be a part of that people we would literally be lost without you Thank you for coming. Thank you for living. Thank you for dying. And now would you rise again in our hearts by faith. We pray this in Christ. Amen.